0: Let's go. Amen. Bless the Lord. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him that you love him in Jesus' name. Bless God. If you have your Bibles tonight, I'd like to invite you to open them with me to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. We're going to begin at verse 13 with you in just a few moments. Uh, For those of you that are just joining us here tonight, we're in a study on Isaiah 53 And I'll explain why we started in 52 in just a moment. But just very quickly to bring you up to speed, and you're not really behind. We only got into one verse last week. We're only going to do two verses tonight. Um, But just to kind of bring you up to speed, at some point, 700 years before Jesus was even born, as Isaiah is praying, as he is seeking the face of God, as he's waiting upon the Lord... The Holy Spirit comes upon him and takes him by the Holy Spirit um, not only into the future to the cross, but actually takes him beyond the cross, in fact, all the way to the end of the age, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ where he'll establish his 1,000-year reign and turns him around so that he's looking back upon the cross as a completed work. And he's giving us a prophetic word of what Israel's response will be as they look back upon the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the perspective that he's in. Usually when a prophet would prophesy, he's just looking into the future. But in this case, he goes beyond the event of the cross, looks back on it, sees the cross, prophesies what Israel's response will be when Christ returns, And then the Spirit turns him around to see the future glory of Christ um, that will be revealed at His second coming. And Isaiah prophesies what he sees in what we know as the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And again, that actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Just at times when uh, the the people who are translating the Scriptures over from the New Testament Greek and from the Old Testament Hebrew to the English, they added the chapters and verses and every once in a while they just messed those up. It doesn't mess with the, uh, the, the text at all, it was just... The human effort to try and make the Bible a little more accessible and every once in a while they got those chapters and those verses in the wrong places chapter 53 begins in chapter 52 verse 13 let's read it behold my servant shall deal prudently he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high um, the very first word grips our heart behold as I said to you last week, it can be used in two ways. It can be used as a loud exclamation as if you're getting someone's attention. And then it can also be used in a in a much more just direct way of communication. And it's like God was saying, look... And now that I have your attention, I need you to carefully consider what I'm going to show you because your eternity is riding on it. That is the significance of Isaiah 53. He is calling out to men and women who are in spiritual slumber. And he's saying, look, and now that I have your attention, I want to show you something that deserves your careful consideration because your eternal destiny is going to rest solely upon what I'm about to share with you. He says, "...behold my servant..." Servant again is the same word as slave. It is speaking of one who works very hard in obedience to his Master. It is a true servant that never would act independently in order to fulfill their own desires but rather they seek out to please the one that they serve. And this is how God refers to the coming Messiah. My servant, the servant of the Lord. And as we talked about on Sunday morning, if you were here, Jesus, though He was fully God, and all the power and all the authority and all of the natural attributes and all the titles that that belonged to Him as God were certainly within His grasp at any time, but He humbled Himself and never grasped for any of them to use them for His own advantage or for His own will, because He came for one reason, and one reason only, and that is to please the Father who sent Him. To obey the will of God. Never once did Jesus take matters into His own hands and assert His own will. He was completely submitted to the Father. What He saw the Father doing, what He heard the Father saying, He was completely submitted to Him. He tells us here that He will deal prudently And again, he is speaking of how the servant will behave, how he will think, how he will act, how he will react and respond, how he will plan out his day, how he will plan out his life, and that is wisely or prudently. And as a result, he will prosper. Both of those words are in play here. That as a direct result of the servant living a prudent and wise life, he will prosper in all that he does. He will wisely understand. He will prosper. He will walk circumspectly. We introduced that word to you last week, which just simply means that Jesus was careful to consider all of the circumstances and all of the consequences. And as He carefully considered both He behaved and he thought, he responded in the only wise way, which is to honor God. That is the only wise way to live, is to live for the glory and the honor of the Lord. That's the only wise way. That's the only way that I can guarantee you that you will not stumble and you will find what true contentment in life is, is to live a life that honors God, that exalts him in all that you do. He says, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Because Jesus humbled himself, because he became a servant, because he dealt wisely in every situation to give God the glory and never take any glory for himself, he was exalted, extolled, and was very high. And if you were here last week, you remember how we talked about how that is constructed in the Hebrew, it's speaking progressively, that progressively throughout the life and ministry of Christ, continuing on until the end of the age, He is just going to get higher and higher until ultimately it culminates in this glorious return when every eye will see Him as He is, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that sets up our next verse. Verse number 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage or his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. It's interesting that just as quickly as Isaiah introduces us to the glory of Christ, he now introduces us to the suffering of Christ and I'm going to tell you that the description that follows is nothing less than horrifying. Nowhere. Nowhere will we find a more graphic depiction of the condition that Jesus would be found in on the cross than right here in Isaiah 53. Not even in the Gospel accounts. The Gospel accounts that are historically recording for us the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Even these historical documents do not go into the graphic nature of Christ's death upon the cross like it is found here in Isaiah 53. He says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So let's see if we can break this down here tonight. He begins again with these words, just as many were astonished at you. There's another translation that says, for many the servant of God became an object For many, excuse me, for many, the servant of God became an object of horror. Many were astonished at him. Still another translation says, but many were amazed when they saw him. So as they look upon The Messiah. Now we know the Messiah is Christ, but this prophecy is given 700 years before Christ was even born. So they had no idea. So as Isaiah is prophesying this, the word that he used to describe what men and women would feel as they looked at Christ upon the cross was astonishment or amazement. As I said to you last week, the language that is used all throughout chapter 53 was meant purposely to be jarring. It was was meant to just take your breath away. It was language that was inspired by the Holy Spirit that was meant to, as the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 4, living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The idea here is that man's heart is so viciously, viciously bent against God with such vicious hatred and rejection that it was going to take an event that was so astonishing, that was so breathtaking that literally it would pierce even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and would discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart of man. That it was going to take something so jarring, so jolting, that we would snap out of the spiritual slumber we find ourselves in and to wake up to our true condition before a living God. It's amazing because so in a similar fashion to Philippians 2 where Jesus is lifted to the highest place as God and then voluntarily chooses not to grasp to his title as God and instead strips himself of any need for them, Isaiah now is going to lift the servant of the Lord to the highest place in verse 13 where we see him, as we just said, exalted, extolled, and very high, to now being marred more than any other man on earth. And it would do well for us to just stop here for a moment and consider the word astonished, because astonished actually sets up just how viciously marred he was. The word astonished, obviously, can be used in a very positive sense. We've all used astonished to positively describe something that took our breath away and certainly it was used that way in the Gospels in describing the ministry of Christ. In Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 through 29 the the speaking of the teachings of Christ it says and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. After healing a deaf and mute man, in Mark chapter 7, in verse 37, it says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Even at 12 years old, they were astonished at how brilliant He was according to the law. You may remember that story where Mary and Joseph lost Jesus and after three days of searching for Him, they finally find Him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers and both listening to them and asking them questions and all who heard Him were astonished at His understanding and His answers. And so certainly there are times when astonished is used in a positive sense. But here it is used in a much different way. In fact, I would tell you it would be the antithesis of positivity. In the Hebrew, the word astonished is never used to convey anything positive. From Genesis to Malachi, anytime that word astonished is used, it's never used to convey anything positive. In fact, it's more closely related to our English word, appalled. It speaks of total devastation. And if you've ever taken the time to read through the New Testament, you'll hear this often. Utter destruction or utter desolation. That's the word that is being used here. It speaks of a total yeah devastation a total desolation it's used to describe throughout the Old Testament the desolation of armies that were defeated in battle and even at times it's used to describe the desolation of a land after it's been invaded and stripped of everything and everyone either taken captive or left dead on the ground was actually a word that was meant to convey shock and horror Uh, this is mind-boggling to me. It was a word that was used to describe hearing news that would actually leave you staggering, that would disorient you for a period of time in your mind, just leave you speechless and not thinking properly. I don't know if you have ever had that happen to you, where you got news that literally affected you physically in that moment and, and disoriented you just for a few seconds. I'll, I'll never forget the first time that that happened to me. Uh, Kathy and I, I don't think that we were even married a year. We were in state college. <clears throat> I was in an office, not mine, but I was in an office when I took a call from up home. And the news that I received, I was standing up. And the news that I received, I was not expecting. And as soon as I heard it, my knees buckled. And I got a new appreciation for when people will say, are you sitting down? My knees buckled. Thankfully, there was a sofa right there. I sat on the arm of the the sofa. And literally, the other person in the line was talking. I couldn't hear anything else because my mind was just riveted on what I had just heard it was astonishing to me that's the way the word is used here I read today that you could even translate the word astonished here as numbed petrified or paralyzed it's the idea that what I'm seeing what I'm reading just paralyzes me it just it just petrifies me that, that, that I'm numbed. That I, I stagger back. And, and literally for a few moments I'm disoriented in my thinking. And that's the word that God chooses to describe the general reaction to the agonizing process of death that His servant would experience in his suffering. A suffering we know now as crucifixion. That they would look upon it and they would be devastated. Devastated. That they would look upon it and they'd be so devastated that the proud heart would actually be defeated and overcome. That they would be shocked, horrified, numbed, petrified, paralyzed. Literally would not be able to leave the scene because they could not believe what they were seeing. It was meant to so jar them and jolt them as they witness what happened, that it would disorient them for a moment. It would snap them out of the stupor that they were in to consider something else. And as Isaiah goes on, you know why he used that word to describe the crucifixion. He says, So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Another translation says his face and his whole appearance were marred more than any man's and his form beyond that of the sons of men. Another translation says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And the last translation says it this way, his face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. There was one more, and it said, They shall see my servant beaten and bloodied, so disfigured, one would scarcely know it was a person standing there. Any way you look at it, The Lord deliberately chose language to remind us that the beating that the servant of the Lord would receive would be so indescribably brutal and barbaric that when it was over, not only would you not recognize him, but you would not even be sure it was a man you were looking at. Isaiah says that as they looked at him, he was so marred, he was so disfigured, that they literally stood there in shock and awe. Horrified. Paralyzed. Numb. They began to stagger and became mentally disoriented. Couldn't think straight. I'm going to restrain myself tonight because this is actually the direction we're going on in Sunday morning as we look a little deeper into the humiliation of Christ from Philippians chapter 2. But this vicious disfigurement actually began, we know, in the garden when we know that Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed so intently that the capillaries in his forehead began to rupture and the blood mingled with sweat, it looked like he was sweating blood clots. So you can imagine how swollen his face was just from that. That's without anything happening to him physically at that point. But we know that long before He ever arrived at the cross, He was beaten over the head, He was spat on, He was mocked, and flogged. We're told in Scripture that a hood was put over His head at one point, and they each took turns beating on Him, mocking Him, saying, Come on, prophesy to us, prophet, who's hitting you? They pulled His beard out in fistfuls. Again, I'm going to restrain myself and not share with you this evening the details of the scourging that He experienced for our sake. We're going to do that on Sunday, but I just didn't feel like He needed to hear it twice in four days. As I said a moment ago, the graphic nature of the beatings that Jesus experienced are seen more in the prophetic Scriptures than the Gospel accounts. One prophecy that cannot be overlooked, but sadly is often overlooked, is from Psalm 22. Psalm is often overlooked as being a prophecy of the crucifixion, but we know that it was because it begins with these words in Psalm 22 and verse 1, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Which you know Jesus actually quoted from the cross. He quoted this at the very moment that he felt the presence of the Lord depart from him. In order for the atonement or the covering of our sin to be complete, Jesus was going to have to experience what Sin truly does to man and that is to separate us from God. It was not necessarily the physical death, it was that spiritual death, eternal separation from God that was resting upon the heart of man. So if Jesus were to make a covering for our sin, he would also have to experience, even if it was for a brief yet concentrated manner, separation from Almighty God and he did and at the exact moment that he sense the father leave him he said my God my God why have you forsaken me and it's here in Psalm 22 that we are given insight into what Jesus himself saw during his crucifixion this is his point of view if you listen to Psalm 22 you you actually hear Jesus saying this is my crucifixion from my point of view this is what I saw as I was being crucified. And please remember that this is being written 1,000 years before the event would ever take place. He says in Psalm 22, verse number 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Jesus said, As I look... At my crucified body, I am poured out like water. It is a poetic way of saying that Jesus at this point had absolutely no strength or energy within him whereby he could fight back if he even wanted to fight back. He was totally and completely exhausted. He had no strength left within him. He said, my bones are out of joint, which would have occurred when they through the cross, into the hole that they dug, and His body absorbed the shock of that, it would have immediately tore His shoulders out of joint. He said, my heart melted like wax within me. And it speaks of the fact that Jesus did not die by crucifixion, but rather of a broken heart. He did not die by physical force, but rather by spiritual force. something that people forget, I try not to let you, but we do from time to time, is how you actually died on the cross. You didn't really die from crucifixion. You died of suffocation. The way you were nailed on the cross, as I understand it, The way you were nailed on the cross, your knees were slightly bent. The only way you could breathe on the cross is if you would bear down on the nail that was in your feet. Take a deep breath. Come back down and hold that as long as you could. And then you would bear back up and take another one and hold that as long as you could. Some people would just say, well, I would have just gotten it over quick. You can't fight the instinct that wants to live. You would just keep pushing yourself up and you would live. Ultimately, you would die when you finally could not push yourself up anymore. You suffocated to death on the cross. It was meant to prolong suffering. You could live, if you would call that living, for up to six, or excuse me, um, three days on the cross in that condition. But Jesus didn't die of suffocation. If you remember, they had to get the bodies off the cross before sundown. And to hasten that death, they went up to the soldiers to break their legs. They broke their legs so they could no longer push themselves up. They suffocated. But when they came to Jesus, the Gospels make it very clear that Jesus was already dead. And to verify His death, they drove a spear or a a sword, something into His side, and out of it came blood and water, which is the telltale sign of congestive heart failure. Jesus died of a broken heart. He'd spent 33 and a half years bearing the sin of man. We often forget that when Jesus' ministry was announced by John the Baptist, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the actual Greek word there is, Behold the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. He had already begun to take upon his heart the sin of man. And his heart now had broken over man's sin against God, and over our vicious rejection of Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. He says, they pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Imagine, 1,000 years before the cross, nobody's even thinking about Rome. No one's even heard of crucifixion. But a thousand years before it would ever take place, he says, they pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me, speaking to the fact that not only was Jesus nailed to the cross by His hands and His feet, but also that while He was hanging there, at any moment, Jesus could look down at Himself and start counting His bones because they were staring right back at Him. He was fully exposed. And as they looked upon this scene, the Bible says they were horrified. You know, it's very easy in the United States to celebrate sin and to forget how wicked sin is. To hear a white lie and think it's no big deal. To hear someone gossip, think it's not an issue, the cross was meant to say, I beg to differ. It was meant to be jarring. It was meant for us to stand there in absolute shock. The next time you say, Jesus died for my sin, I would beg that we would show maybe a little more respect. He was more than his life was more than taken. He was absolutely humiliated. When they looked at him on the cross, they didn't even know it was a man. But then, it's just amazing, because right out of that, he then says in verse 15, so shall He sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at Him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. And so, as, as jarring as that is, now He takes us to His glory. So, so just uh, think about this. God gives us a picture of the servant's exaltation only to turn us to His humiliation in verse 14, then to take us back to His exaltation, His triumphant return here in verse 15. Because what we just read there in verse 15 is how the nations of the earth will respond when they see Jesus the second time. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ He is seeing here. He says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. It can be a, a little misleading when you see that word sprinkle. And yet it's very possible that in the middle margin in your Bible, if you have one, it actually says that the preferred word there is, um, is startle. That's actually the, the proper translation. It's not so much sprinkle as it is startle, although there is a connection between those two words because you probably have seen this on TV or in the movies. Maybe you've done it in practice, but someone that is like in shock or they're ready to faint, a lot of times you'll see somebody grab a glass of water and throw it in their face or they'll splash water on their face to wake them up. That's the idea idea that is here is that when christ comes the second time that he will startle them that it would be like throwing water in their faces and all of a sudden what they couldn't see what they couldn't hear what they couldn't understand will be completely known to them that's the idea that when he arrives the second time he will startle the nations to the point where all the kings, all of those who thought they were greater than God will shut their mouths before him. For thousands of years, men and women, kings and paupers, free and slave, have openly mocked and denounced God, even denied Him. You can go home tonight and hear men and women on TV, whether it's the news or it's entertainment, mocking God, blaspheming God, thumbing their nose in the face of God. You hear atheists all the time saying, if there is a God, why doesn't He strike me dead right now? I dare Him. to to strike me dead and we just think how long is God going to tolerate this but I'm going to tell you in one moment He'll silence every mouth when they see Him face to face. When Jesus returns the nations of the earth will be silent before Him and they will know the party is over jesus spoke about it himself in matthew 24 and verse 30 he says then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory not gray glory, <laughs> great glory but great glory In Revelation 1, in verse number 7, it says, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. And Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse number 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is not going to be a happy moment for the world when Jesus shows up because He's coming with vengeance for all who have rejected Him. And then as He closes out verse 15 he says for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider and this is particularly chilling at least to me it is very chilling because what he is describing is that in that moment they will understand that everything they have been rejecting for thousands of years was in fact true but now it is too late When you first read it, it almost sounds like no one ever told them, that no one had ever shared with them. And that's why they hadn't heard, that's why they hadn't considered, that's why they hadn't seen. But you got to remember the language that Isaiah always used. In fact, earlier in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 9, God said to him, to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. It sounds like God is being counterproductive, but what He's just simply saying is, Isaiah, I'm just sending you as one more witness against them, but you need to know, you're going to talk, they're not going to hear you. You're going to show them, they're not going to see it. You're going to explain it. They're not going to understand it because they don't want to hear it. Because they don't want to understand it. Because they don't want to see it. They want to live the way they want to live. And I'm just sending you so that I can stand in good faith, if you will, knowing I did all that I could do. But they have hardened their heart. In Romans 11, in verse 8, it it says it again. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, of drunkenness, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. What he is just simply saying there is that time and time again, I brought my prophets, I brought my ministers, I brought my angels, I gave them my word, but they would have nothing to do with it. They heard the truth, but they had no love for the truth. And that is why Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, in Second Thessalonians two and verse 11, "And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion." that they should believe the lie. I don't know if I need to bring this up right now, but I I will just this is speaking of the last days, this is talking about the return of Christ and And if you read a little bit before this, you will, you'll hear, you know, that God gave them the word, but they did not want to hear it. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they would believe the lie because they had no love for the truth. And there are so many people that they just are rolling the dice saying, you know what? Even if I reject Christ and we get to the rapture and I'm left behind, I will still come to the Lord afterward. And I look at him and I say, no, you won't. To me, the only ones who will ever be saved during the great tribulation period will be anyone that had never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Anyone that was given the opportunity but loved not to hear the truth, God will send them a strong delusion and they will believe the lie of that hour and be lost for all of eternity. And sadly, when Jesus comes and He reveals Himself and everyone in that moment will know that He is the Messiah, that there is no other name given by which man may be saved, it will be too late. And that is why they mourn. Because there is no second chance. There is no opportunity. The harvest has come and they are lost. Folks, we got to get about our Father's business. People need Jesus. People need Christ. What could we possibly do in this earth that is more important than sharing the good news with our family and friends and use every opportunity that we are given to plead with them to come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord? I leave you with this. We're done. 2 Corinthians 5:11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men knowing the terror of the Lord knowing the terror of an eternity in hell we persuade them be reconciled to God Hell is no joke. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. And we need to be about our Father's business. Stand in awe of Him today in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Just take a moment. Just let the Lord speak to your heart. Bless the Lord. So many men and women, Lord, have considered the cross through the years and have completely misunderstood uh, the graphic nature of it. Um, They miss miss out on, on what was really happening there among other things, you were revealing to the world your vicious hatred towards sin. How appalling it is to you that you would not even spare your Son who knew no sin but became sin for us to reveal to us, if You would not spare Your own Son, why would we ever think You'd spare us? It was meant to arrest our heart and to bring us in humility to the Father, confessing and forsaking our sin, turning our back on it once and for all. Lord, it's, it's so easy at this time of year to be moved emotionally when we see various depictions of the sufferings of Christ, whether it be in a play or a movie. But help us to recognize what was happening. This was not meant to just make us feel sorry for Christ this was meant to reveal the vengeance of God towards all who remain in sin. And that there is only one name by which man could be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. So I pray as we go throughout this season that not only would we be humbled by what You did on the cross for our salvation, but may we be so humbled that we would even put ourselves before people and talk to them about the love of God that has been demonstrated through the cross that they might be saved. May Your name be exalted in it all. These are sobering words. Lord, I, I, I know You led me to study this chapter but what I didn't know is how intense it would be. These are just the first three verses. We still have 12 to go. Walk us through it and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. God bless you, everybody.